We've had 40 years of declining interest rates. And so the real estate business became one of merchant building. 95% of the real estate community builds to sell the building. Well, once the interest rates turn over and the cap rates turn up, that model breaks. It's hard to get away from the recession talk right now and the constant predictions about how it will play out in real estate. Welcome back. Mortgage rates now at a 20-year high. Take a look at the 30-year fixed rate skyrocketing to nearly 7% this week. I'm Miriam Hall and multi-decade real estate veteran Ed Cross is my guest today on BizNow Reports. I tell the young people in my life, you only get to play the cards you're dealt. You can't play somebody else's cards. So if the cards you're dealt are higher inflation and higher interest rates, how do you play those cards? Ed has been through three major downturns over the course of his career so far, and he's quick to point out there have been many big names in the industry that have made their fortunes and thrived during high interest rate environments and economic uncertainty. He's based in San Antonio, and he moved there from Houston in the 1980s when the oil price plunged, killing the real estate market and pushing him and many others out. The oil bust has hit everyone, the store owners who must liquidate their stocks, the big developers who built new office buildings and shopping centers which now stand empty. In San Antonio, he owned and operated the Cushman and Wakefield Alliance office for many years, and he was investing and developing along the way. Now he's working with partners in what he calls his swan song, a conversion of the 1929 Tower Life building in San Antonio from office to residential space, which is a lifelong dream that he's had. We're talking in a moment about his advice to younger people in the industry, those, and there are many of them, who have only known a market on the rise. He also touches on why he thinks the model of making money in real estate may be set to break. First, though, he's speaking about the enormous task of turning a 1920s office building into a home for people in the 21st century. The building has been owned by a local family since the 1940s, and Ed first started talking to them about his idea 13 years ago. They actually contacted me first in 2009. Uh, I was building the first ground up uh, apartment building in San Antonio uh, called the Vistana. And um, what was the, then the third generation of the family, one of the young uh, sons, reached out to me and uh, was following my progress on the other building, uh, knew my reputation, and asked me to come over uh, and talk to them about uh, converting the building to housing. And this was 2009. So this, is, this has been a while in the making. Well, wait, it gets better. So I. Uh, this is the most iconic building in San Antonio, I guess, other than the Alamo. Uh, and of course, it's much taller. And, uh, and so, uh, like any uh, real estate person uh, who's also a frustrated architect, I uh, was excited to get the phone call. Uh, ultimately, the um, family decided not to sell. Uh, and uh, I waited five years. I went back in 2014. Make a, made a second offer, higher offer, and uh, after some give and take, again they decided not to sell. So uh, starting in 2014, I called uh, that young man, the third generation, 
every 90 days. Did you set a, a, a reminder? I did, and uh, not quite every 90, but regularly for seven years. And so last fall, fall of, of 21, uh, his name is Ben, and I called Ben, and we would chat about the weather and football, and you know, and then I'd just say, how are y'all doing? And uh, uh, you know, for seven years, it was a polite no. And then finally last fall, he said, um, it's time, come on down. So it was being run as an office building until that point? It was. So uh, officially, they officially made the decision that, that it was not viable anymore as office? Yeah, and I, I don't know the family dynamics. It's a very well-known, uh, uh, successful family in San Antonio. And so uh, they had enough. And uh, so we were able to get it under contract finally uh, last winter. Uh, they had been remarkable stewards of the building. Uh, physically, it was in fantastic condition. In fact, um, that's one of the big issues with these uh, projects is, is uh, whenever you do a historic innovation, uh, there are surprises. And uh, we've uh, thankfully found very few. Um, and so it's taken us a while to kind of figure it out. Um, it's a big building and it's, it's 285,000 feet. Um, and so um, we uh, bought it in late April. Um, this is public knowledge, so we bought it with a, another uh, successful wealthy family in San Antonio, the McCombs family. Uh, the patriarch who's still alive is named Red McCombs, a uh, very famous auto dealer in San Antonio, uh, and was known for bringing the, the San Antonio Spurs to San Antonio. Okay. <laughs> he owned uh, the Minnesota Vikings football team, so he's uh, very well known and, and admired in uh, San Antonio and Texas. We're, um, his daughter is, uh, is a friend, is my age, and then his grandson and my young partner, John Wiegand, uh, are uh, peers. And so um, it's been fun working with uh, another uh, family and uh, the descendants. What's it ultimately going to be? Is it going to be rental apartments? It, it will be. Is it going to have an affordability component? It, it will be, yeah. yeah. What, how's it going to look? So, um, great question. So. Uh, the building will have 234 apartments. Uh, we'll do restaurants and bars on the ground floor and the river level. Uh, it's on the San Antonio Riverwalk. It's, it's just an ideal building, uh, uh, location, location, location. It's on a, the Riverwalk, of course, is famous. It's the historic part of the Riverwalk, but it's the quiet part. The, the Riverwalk in San Antonio really has two sections. Uh, one section is Bourbon Street and one section is, is very quiet, and we're on the, the quiet part. And uh, we will, uh, from the second floor up, uh, we'll do uh, multifamily, we'll do 234 units. Um, it, there's a mechanism in Texas uh, that is an incentive program uh, that requires a certain amount of uh, affordability. So 50% of the units will be market rate apartments. 40% of the units will be leased to people who make 80% of uh, AMI, adjusted median income. And that's a federal calculation by uh, uh, metropolitan area. And then the last 10% will be for 60% AMI. And so we'll, and this is something that's very appealing to me. I've, I've, uh, been public in my comments that we want a mix of incomes 
and a mix of ages. So uh, uh, it's interesting, the building I built uh, in 2009, uh, classic high-rise uh, multifamily, I thought I was going to have a barbell community, a uh, bunch of 20s and 30s, a bunch of empty nesters, 50s and 60s, and in reality, my demographics are egg-shaped in that building. Uh, the, the largest cohort are 30s to 40s, and they're mostly singles. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that the Tower Life building is more of a barbell that we have a mix of young folks and a mix of empty nesters. So how is it, um, how's it going now? How far along are you? It's still pretty early days in the it life is. cycle of a building. Have you come across any issues so far? Oh, how long do we have? <laughs> um, this is something that a lot of people are looking at, particularly yeah. in New York, where there's a lot of Class B and Class yeah. C office buildings that people are wondering what, what their future may be. And this is being put up as a possible option. Yeah, in fact, New York has done a very good job of converting some of the older buildings to housing already. In fact, next week I'm in New York uh, and I'm spending a day with a, a very uh, accomplished architect in this space, a group called Cetra Rudy, and I'm spending time in their office looking at what they do and I'm looking at some of their conversions. There's not many people who do this. We've only identified four or five architectural firms in the country with the expertise. And it's we have to, we don't want somebody to go to school on this project. We, we want experience. So back to your question, um, we're really uh, focused on construction costs right now. And uh, um, get into the weeds with you a little bit. When you have an office building, how you do the air conditioning, how you do bathrooms, how you do all what we call MEP is 100% different than an apartment building. Uh, our floors are 7,500 feet, and so if it's an office building, you're cooling the whole floor or heating the whole floor. Well, when you have 10 apartments on that same floor at 750 feet apiece, each one of them has a different, uh, my wife loves it cold. Yeah. I mean, not cold, she likes like meat locker cold. Uh, and then one of my uh, office mates is he wants it hot. And that's the nature of the apartment world. You have everybody has a little bit different taste in how they live. And so those, how do you construct that and how much does that cost is one of our huge efforts right now. And I would tell you that uh, the benefit that we have, the luxury that we have, is that we don't see starting work till the summer of 24. We have an existing office tenant base uh, that we have to manage to kind of keep them there as long as we can and then hopefully everybody leaves at once. And so we have the luxury of time to figure out these issues, but uh, they're not easy issues. I've always thought the plumbing would be the biggest challenge, but it sounds like the heating and the cooling is the biggest challenge. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, this building was built before um, air conditioning and before fire sprinklers. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, the bathrooms they have in this building, this is, uh, this is being frugal to a fault. The bathrooms are in the, the fire stair a half a level up or a half a level down. So if you were an office tenant on the 25th floor uh, and you're male, you'd go into the fire stair and you either went up half a level and there was your bathroom or you went down a half a level to your bathroom. And of course in this era of ADA, 
that doesn't work. And when you need an individual bathroom, that doesn't work. And so uh, the good news is they have plumbing chases that run throughout the building uh, that we hopefully can uh, 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 use. But the air conditioning is start from scratch. Is this something you would recommend to other people? I mean, I know it's kind of, you know, you're still getting started and you haven't started construction, but what, from what you've learned so far, is it something you would say, this, you should be doing this? Um, this is a swan song for me. I'm, I'm 67, I'm in good health, thankfully. This is a dream of mine. It's a passion project. Uh, hopefully passion projects don't turn into non-profit projects. Yeah. But, <laughs> a profitable uh, passion project. Yes, yeah. that's how it's, uh, the three Ps, P3. Yeah. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I've been fortunate in my career in many regards, and more than anything else, I love a challenge. And to be associated with a, a building of this caliber and this iconic, and to, and to bring it uh, new life, to re, uh, have it reborn as uh, probably, a, we hope, a destination uh, home for San Antonians would be a, a wonderful accomplishment. The war for talent rages on, but your secret weapon is waiting. Select Leaders is commercial real estate's top job board. So find out why the industry's biggest companies use our recruiting solutions. And right now, BizNow reports listeners can take advantage of a special discount on job postings and other services by using the code PODCAST at checkout. Log on to selectleaders.com now and get connected to the job network for the commercial real estate industry. point in your career in your life where you're kind of sitting back a little bit and look at the moment that we're in are you comparing it to 2008 are you comparing it to the 90s oh boy that's a great question um, uh, this is I've, I've been through three major recessions in my career I'm, I live in San Antonio because of a recession in Houston in the middle 1980s uh, the price of oil had gone from three dollars to forty dollars and Houston boomed, and uh, that first had happened in the 70s, and then the price corrected in the uh, middle 80s to, from 40 to 10, and Houston crashed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and I was 29, and there were 10 of us who moved to San Antonio and Austin, all young men in this case, and we all had to leave because the market had quit, and we called ourselves the Houston real estate refugees. And so um, that was an existential crash. It wiped out the development community in Houston. 90% of the office buildings got foreclosed on. Uh, this is not that kind of, at least I don't see it as that kind of uh, correction. Um, in 2008, in the Great Financial Recession, uh, we did not have the foreclosures. We didn't have the distress but it really slowed down. And so the transaction volume slowed down. And as I said at the beginning, I, I made a career as a, a commercial real estate broker, and I think I went a year without a transaction back then. And so my gut is that what we're, we're starting right now, I, think, I do think we're in a recession. I do think that the rise of interest rates will slow activity down, but, uh, I don't think we're going to go into a, a deep recession. I think it's some, well, I'm spoiled. Uh, San Antonio is a very balanced economy. 
as opposed to say Houston that was all oil and gas. We have five food groups. So San Antonio doesn't boom, but it doesn't crash. And the same is true for Texas. So I'm, I have a uniquely local perspective on the economy, which is a positive perspective. Um, I would hate to be in Cleveland. I would hate to be in Detroit. Uh, there are places that this cycle will hurt. What's, what's unique about those places? Well, they've, they've been down for a long time. Uh, okay. So, you know, it's interesting. Let me go off on a quick tangent. Every recession has had a different poster child of product that has been damaged. And uh, 08, 09 was single family houses. Um, I think uh, I was really intrigued by COVID and I was expecting the hotel business to be permanently damaged and yet they survived. And at least in San Antonio, they're back. Um, this recession, and this is why you're interviewing me, is going to dis distinctly impact office space. Uh, I personally think office is permanently impaired that will have negative absorption for the foreseeable future in the next seven to 10 years, in large part because the work from home phenomenon is now accepted and that corporate America Corporate America, it, this is fascinating, it's something I learned a long time ago. Their number one expense is payroll, is people. Their number two expense is real estate. And if they can uh, reduce, if, if they keep the same headcount and they can reduce their office space by a third, they'll do it. And, and so that's what we're seeing in San Antonio. Our corporations, when their leases are coming up, they're typically moving into newer buildings with more amenities, and they're typically taking much less space. So the lend and extend um, that we saw, we saw a lot of that through COVID. We did. Everyone was, you know, let's get through it, and there was a lot of, obviously, government incentive to do that. Do you think that's going to last much longer? Well, uh, that's actually, I think, probably the biggest question that, that the, all of us will deal with over the next year which is as properties get into trouble, uh, will the lenders uh, do forbearance, blend and extend, as, as you described it, uh, or will they take ownership? And it's interesting, uh, I'll, I'll get in the weeds with you just here, most of the bank loans have personal recourse. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not personally recourse on the Tower Life loan. I've learned not to be. Uh, most life insurance company loans, uh, like we just came out of a session talking about malls, uh, most uh, buildings that were bought with permanent loans, life in insurance loans, are not recourse. And so you as the owner, if you get to a point you don't want to keep putting money into it, you can give the keys back to the lender and just walk away. Heinz Company just gave a big building back in Washington, D.C., and yeah. that was their decision. I can tell you that made waves on our website. Oh, yeah, the name and the location. And a bit of similar thing happened in New York with the Blackstone building. Right. Blackstone said, we're done with this building. Right. So I, that's going to be, I'm going to pay real close attention to that. So you don't know yet. You're not sure right. yet if that's going to happen. No. And, and, uh, Do you think, think anyone knows? Or? No. <laughs> and they won't know until there's a lot of it. This is going to take time, just because the leases have years left on them. 
Uh, but really what you'll see is uh, it's like any crisis. It's, it doesn't become a crisis until the, the sheer number of assets, number of loans have gone bad. And I don't think that's going to happen for a while. A lot of people always say well, the banks don't really want the buildings no, because they, they don't. don't really want to run a building. I mean, they can sell it on, but that's annoying. Like, yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, so uh, Texas was ground zero for a recession in the 1980s. And the process back then was you'd foreclose on it, the bank would take it over, and eventually the bank would fail. And the federal regulators back then, uh, Texas was first, and so they came in and closed the banks. Little known fact, San Antonio was a banking center. It had bigger and more banks than Charlotte, North Carolina in 1984. And 6,000 bankers got fired in San Antonio in the 1980s, and we lost our banking community. We had 50-some-odd banks and savings and loans based in San Antonio, and four survived. And so what the feds realized, and this goes back to the blend and extend, that that was extremely damaging to a community. And San Antonio was the poster child. And so I think they want to do everything they can to keep the banks alive. Um, I, I'm, my start, thankfully, was I had not done much by the time that happened in the 80s. And so I bought a lot of foreclosures kind of in my first uh, phase of an investor. And I started uh, in, the, in 2010, uh, the banks, rather than take ownership, would sell the loan. So I've bought several pieces of real estate in my career, distressed real estate, where I bought the loan and then I had to, play, I had to foreclose on the asset. And it's a, it's a more challenging way to take ownership, but conversely, you get completely clean title. There's a lot of people who wouldn't, who are in real estate right now, who would never have experienced anything like that. Um, I'm 67. I don't think there's 10% of the community that's ever experienced that. This is what I really fear. I'm, I'm so fortunate at this chapter of my life that I've been uh, able to mentor a number of young people, and they're all 25 to 35, and they've never seen a down market, and they've never had to deal with distress. They've never had to deal with uh, failure and problems. And in some regard, I feel sorry for them because um, you, uh, there's a great uh, concept. Nicholas Taleb Tassim has The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile. It's a book I recommend to people. And he talks about fragility is the lack of stress and that uh, you get more and more fragile the more comfortable you get and that to be anti-fragile, you have to deal with problems and stress. And he talks about it with the human body, about you need to go out and lift weights. Yeah. You need to exercise because that's how the body gets stronger. And if you don't, you become fragile. And so the same thing. So I think, think some people are like that in their real estate careers. Correct. Absolutely. And it's the people who've never faced a down cycle that I worry about the most which is a lot of people. And I also was um, listening to a discussion recently where people were saying, we're gonna to have to relook at the values of these buildings. Right. The values of the buildings are based on basically a zero interest rate environment. They were. How do you think people are gonna to have to think about buildings now and think about their value, think about the, the model of making money? Well, we've had 40 years of declining interest rates 
and there has been an arbitrage of building for a certain return, selling for a lower return. And it's basically predicated on interest rates falling steadily for 40 years. And so the real estate business became one of merchant building. And so 95% uh, of the real estate community builds to sell the building. I'm not talking about single family housing, I'm talking about commercial. Yeah. Office buildings, hotels, apartments, industrial, it's all build it and sell it because the money was so good. Well, once the interest rates turn over and the cap rates turn up, that model breaks. So the, the value you built it for, you can't sell it for your cost. And so I think, my opinion, is that real estate's going to have to go back to the way it was. It's going to build it to hold it. Your return's going to be from rents, not from sales proceeds, not from capital gains. Is that a good thing? Uh, I, I don't know. And, I, and the reason I'm not making a value judgment on that is it's just an observation about how the world works. Mm -hmm. And I tell the young people in my life, you only get to play the cards you're dealt. You can't play somebody else's cards. So if the cards you're dealt are higher inflation and higher interest rates, how do you play those cards? It's one of the little parlor games I play with the young people and I say, you know, if, you, if, you've, if you're in a, a situation where inflation's always going up and interest rates are going up, how do you do that? And you'd be surprised, uh, one in 10 have the correct answer. What, what is it? You hold the real estate and you put fixed rate debt on it and you let inflation raise your rents and your return, because your costs are capped, your interest rate is fixed, your returns widen over time. And great fortunes were created in that environment. Gerald Hines, Trammell Crow, just to name two, in Texas, prospered, got wealthy in that environment, but they got wealthy slowly. Time was, time was their friend, and we've gotten spoiled, we've gotten rich quickly. Yeah, I mean, the people have been trained to expect a quick end, build it, get out, Make, right. make a killing. Right, right, right. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here. At some point in the next five years, people will no longer ask what the IRR is. Really? Uh, because the IRR is always predicated on a sale. You always have an exit. And now the, it's going to go back to what's my leveraged return? What's my cash flow? People are going to be buying cash flows again and that's what's important. Is that why we are seeing so much interest, do you think, in like multifamily in places like New York? Like some of the biggest trades are massive multifamily buildings where people are looking and thinking, oh, we can buy this, hold on to it, rents are going crazy. Uh, I've got a, a, that's a good question and I'm gonna give you a different answer. I think inherently multifamily, housing is always going to be in demand because people need a place to live. Other product types, office buildings, hotels, even industrial, you don't have to have that uh, every day. Mm -hmm. you, have to have, you have to have a home every day. And so multifamily will always have, it will always have demand. Whereas other product types, and in the conversation we've had today about office, uh, 
office demand is going to be going down net over the next few years. Let me finish by coming back to, to the building. What is your ultimate hope there? Is a plan to hold on to that and, and, and enact the model yes. that you expect is, is going yeah. to be the model going forward? Yeah, uh, uh, good question. Um, I, I have long been a buy or build and hold. I, I've believed in the inflation and that the value of real estate will appreciate my whole career. And I've not been in the merchant business. Uh, and I will tell you that has paid off very well for me. Uh, part of that is that I've been a pioneer. I've, 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 had, um, I've had the ability to see um, future development patterns before the, the rest of the community did. I, I bought up a lot of real estate in Midtown San Antonio uh, before anybody else mm -hmm. saw it. And so I'm, I'm, I've been fortunate to have had a patient perspective on real estate. Um, this building is an iconic, irreplaceable asset. And like the family we bought it from, I hope that my heirs own it for decades because you literally cannot replace it. It's a generational asset. And fortunately, my partners, the McCombs family, believes the same thing. That's Ed Cross. He runs Cross & Co. And he's a former commercial real estate broker as well. Those two books that Ed recommended were The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable, and Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from Disorder. Those are two books by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, if you want to look them up. We've been covering the concept of office to residential conversions a lot at BizNow, as well as the general outlook for office as well. I've left links in the episode notes. Thanks again for listening. I'm Miriam Hall.